Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, May the 2nd, 2023. Over the last few months and couple of years, we've done a number of shows about books on um, the indigenous tradition, particularly in North America, the indigenous communities of one kind or another. We did one with the historian Margaret Jacobs uh, on um, uh, reconciliation on America's stolen lands. Uh, her book, After 100 Winters, uh, has been very well reviewed. We did a show with the Canadian uh, indigenous writer uh, Tanya Talaga on cultural genocides, links to indigenous suicides. Her book, All Our Relations, is also uh, pretty influential. Uh, done all sorts of books on other aspects of history, one with a prize-winning book, Nicole Eustace. Uh, her book, uh, Covered with Night, a story of murder and indigenous justice in early America, is about uh, uh, a murder story uh, in the foundations of American history. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, we did a show with the Canadian novelist uh, Tannis Rideout uh, on indigenous issues in Canada and in Micronesia. Her new novel, The Sea Between Two Shores, uh, is just out. Um, we haven't done, however, any shows on books about indigenous communities and issues for teenagers, young adult books. That's changing today. Uh, Angeline uh, Bouley is uh, an acclaimed author. Uh, many of you will be familiar with her first book, Firekeeper's Daughter. It's enormously successful, has over 11,500 reviews on, on Amazon. Quite an incredible achievement. And she has a new book out, another young adult book out, part two, I guess, volume two in, in the narrative. Uh, Warrior Girl Unearthed. It's out today on Tuesday, May 2nd. And I'm thrilled and honored that uh, Angeline uh, Bully is joining us from New York City. Angeline, welcome and congratulations on the new book. Oh, miigwech. Thank you so much. Uh, Angeline, writing for young adults about the issues that concern you, is that different for, from writing for grown-ups is there something it particular is. about um the the form and the function of your literature yes i think young adult authors have a uh a duty uh like a first do no harm to our readers because we know that we are introducing topics that maybe they have never read about before um or covering topics that uh uh maybe uh a friend or it's the first time they've ever read about, you know, this. And so there is that responsibility to, uh, you know, make sure that you're conveying truthful information accurately, but with sensitivity and respect for the teen reader. Tell me about that teen reader. How did you discover your voice? How did you realize that your literary qualities were suited for writing for teens as opposed to younger children or adults? I had heard before, write the book you wish you had read as a teen. 
And uh, when I was growing up, I think I was 18 before I ever read a book that featured a Native American main character. And um, unfortunately, it was a problematic book, the representation. And, um, and so I think it always stayed in my mind of someday writing a book that uh, would be good for my children, my nieces, and uh, the, the teens that I worked with in different tribal communities in Michigan. Angela, and second books are always particularly hard, especially if your first book is such an enormous success like Firekeeper's Daughter. Did you, I won't say struggle, but did you, did you, uh, you must have given a great deal of thought to whether or not <laughs> it would continue with the same characters, the same tradition, the same narrative form, or, or start something anew. How, how did you figure that one out? Well, I was not interested in writing. Uh, so the main character in my first book is Donis. And I was not interested in writing Donis's next adventure. Uh, I was excited to write about a character who was completely different from Donis. Uh, someone who maybe was more impulsive, funnier, uh, you know, quick on their feet. And, um, and so uh, Perry one of the little six-year-old twins from the first book is now 16 and she's a reluctant summer intern at her tribe's museum and uh, that's where she learns about our uh, ancestors their the human remains and sacred items uh, that are kept in museums and with private collectors and she decides that she's going to uh do a heist and uh, repatriate things on her own. There's an element of, of saltiness about her. Uh, is she like you? Which of the, the two characters in your book is most autobiographical? Donis, my first character. Uh, Perry is kind of who I wish I could have been. As yeah, I was going to say, uh, exactly. everyone would like to be like Perry. Yes. I just, I'm uh, too much in my head. I overthink everything. I worry about things that, you know, will never come to pass. And uh, so for me, it was just wonderful to write a character that was so refreshing and um, had a lightness about her spirit, which was very important. Uh, she ended up being the ideal narrator for the story because the topic of repatriation uh, can be so intense. And I really felt that balance of Perry's natural humor and, um, you know, that, that her sunniness, that that was important. How hard is it to balance? I mean, obviously, there are some serious issues here associated with our collective moral responsibility in terms of the, the fate of indigenous peoples, the history, exploitation, crimes and all the rest of it. But also making a book that's fun for young adults. Uh, otherwise, they're not going to read it. Otherwise, it's going to read like a boring history book. Um, how hard is that to balance in the kind of literature you do? I don't think it's that difficult. Uh, it's kind of like having a conversation with my nieces uh, and, and telling them stories and things that I want them to know about. And, yeah, make it interesting. Uh, 
create characters that you care about deeply and the reader will too. And that's a great entry into learning about these issues. Like Perry, she you know, didn't really know about repatriations. And as she learns and becomes outraged, I hope the reader learns and is also outraged and compelled to take action. Why should they be outraged, Angeline? Well, in the U.S., the uh, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was passed in 1990. And at that time, uh, the Congressional Budget Office predicted that it would take 10 years to repatriate everything out of the uh, collections of museums and institutions. Well, it's over 30 years now, and there are still more ancestors that have not been repatriated than have been. So there are still over 108,000 sets of ancestors that, um, you know, uh, museums and institutions are just dragging their heels and finding every loophole to prevent from uh, returning them to the tribes that are saying, yes, these are our um, ancestors and we want them returned. What does repatriation mean? What happens if they are returned? Each tribe is different. And so there are some tribes that will uh, do a, uh, a ceremony um, where they return the ancestors to the earth. Um, others, you know, they'll do a great celebration, but then the reburial will be done in private and... Um, no one will know the exact location. Um, so every community does it different. And they, we've had to recreate, we've had to invent new ceremonies because we didn't have any ceremony to return uh, remains to the earth. Uh, that was something that, you know, uh, generations ago couldn't have conceived of it. Tell me about that earth. I know you're from, and I'm going to probably mispronounce the name of the place in Michigan, Solstermarie. Uh, you, you write about it as this wonderful plaque that I know you're enormously proud of. Uh, <laughs> tell me about this place, this land, your ancestral home. So it's uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula. And um, in Ojibwe, we call it uh, Bawating which means a uh, place of the rapids. And so uh, it was a, a great fishing and gathering point um, historically. And then um, the Sioux Locks, uh, the, Na the Native Americans were moved along downriver and, um, and the locks were built so that ships could go from Lake Superior to the other Great Lakes, which are about a 22 foot difference. Um, so yeah, my my tribal community is there on Sugar Island and Sault Ste. Marie. So Sugar Island sits in between uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan and Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. It's in the St. Mary's River. We did a show uh, last month with Brian Selznick, very influential Hollywood uh, animator, on um, a, a new children's book he had about addressing the environmental crisis. What do you think um, your book tells us about our attachment to the land or what our attachment to the land should or might be to address today's terrible environmental crisis? 
Well, there's, um, I believe he's an anthropologist, Chip Colwell, who has a book that I believe is called um, uh, Plundered Spirits, Stolen Skulls. I think that's what it is. And he talks about how to him as an archaeologist or anthropologist, he sees pottery shards and thinks of, you know, it's just an object. Uh, likewise with bones and um, sacred items, he thinks of them just as objects, just like um, uh, pottery. Uh, and then to indigenous peoples, you know, those are our ancestors, and we think of them as still with us. And um, and there's this relationship uh, there, and that we feel compelled to return them to the earth because they were taken without anyone's permission and um, researched upon. So we want them returned rather than staying in university archives where they're written on with Sharpie marker and stored in cardboard boxes and paper bags. Um, you know, you would no, not... I, I take that point, but does... And, and again, I speak of this indigenous... I mean, there are... I'm sure there's many more than one indigenous tradition. I don't mean to, to to patronize anybody here. But is there another way of thinking more broadly about the land and its exploitation and our responsibility in terms of leaving it in good condition to our ancestors? Well, my dad always says that we were the first environmentalists, we Ojibwe people, right. um, because we only took what we needed and we left the rest behind uh, for uh, for others, and um, I think that's just this reciprocal uh, way of being, of living, and relationship with the earth. And so, I think when we look at uh, climate issues, uh, we're looking at that at it that relationship being out of balance, and certainly uh, the extraction of resources from the earth. And when Native Americans are protesting the lack of clean water and um, protesting, you know, oil pipelines running through their uh, land without their permission. Um, you know, that's, those are the types of things that we're fighting, not just for ourselves, but for those generations to come, um, because that's how we think of our communities. Um, Do you though? I mean, is there a, I mean, you grew up in this community is there more broadly a different, did you grow up thinking about community differently? I mean, obviously in ethnic, racial terms, perhaps there are differences, but do you think there are profound cultural differences in, in, in that context and in, in how you think about community? Yes, because it's not just the nuclear family unit. It's, you know, I have cousins and, you know, I don't think about, oh, they're my third cousin twice removed or something like that. It's like, no, they're cousin. And likewise, elders in the community, um, you know, will call auntie or grandma. And, um, and there is that sense of uh, relationship with one another. Um, How does that, though, um make you think of outsiders of people who aren't part of the family or is the world part of this family in a broad sense um i i don't know that i can you know speak for 
Uh, for you personally, of course, you can't speak. Me personally, right. I can't speak for all Native Americans, but, um, well, my mother's not Native. My father is. Uh, my maternal grandmother did not care for Native Americans, and it took a long time before she um, viewed my dad with respect uh, for being a good husband and father. And, um, you know, and... On my native side, my grandparents just adored my mother and never um, never had like a litmus test for her to prove herself uh, to be worthy of you know being part of the family. There was acceptance and and that's what I grew up knowing is on my non native side, there was uh, some preconceived ideas and and stereotypes and prejudices. And on my native side, uh, it was a more accepting um, and larger sense of community. Angela, you've mentioned your father a few times. Tell me a little bit more about him. Um, he was, at least according to your Wikipedia page, a traditional firekeeper. What does that mean? So whenever there's a ceremony uh, or a special event like a powwow, a language conference, a fasting camp, uh, he will strike a ceremonial fire, and uh, that fire will run day and night for the duration of the event. And he um, watches over that fire, tends to it, uh, maintains protocols uh, because you don't roast marshmallows or hot dogs in uh, a ceremonial fire. You don't gossip uh, around the fire. You only uh, talk about good things uh, because that feeds the fire, and it's serving a higher purpose. So, yeah, that's his role in our community and uh, with other communities that invite him in. Can women be firekeepers, or is it a, a male preserve? Um, you know, I think that there's... The teachings I received are one way, but that's not to say that other communities have different ways, but that uh, men strike the fire and that women do um, water teachings, so. Angeline, how concerned are you with the current cultural climate in the United States? You're traveling a lot, of course, for, for both books, particularly the book is out this week. I'm sure you're doing a huge amount of speeches, bookstore signings. We did a show with another very popular um, young adult writer, Kelly Yang, uh, on well, the new culture wars over kids' books, about DeSantis, for example, banning certain books in Florida. Are you seeing that with your literature? Are you seeing some states, some communities uh, that are uncomfortable with your work and want to keep these kind of books out of schools? I have not seen it with my uh, work, but... I'm very much aware of it happening to author friends of, of mine. And, you know, it's a parent has every right to decide what their child, um, you know, sh can and cannot read. But no parent should have the right to tell me what books my child can or cannot read. Um, and, and so I'm... When I go around the country, it seems like I talk with parents and there are more parents that are outraged by uh, the practice of banning, but uh, they're not as outspoken. 
for a number of reasons, and I certainly would never want um, a parent or community member to put themselves uh, in an unsafe position uh, advocating for the freedom to read uh, books. But um, sometimes it's that we say the squeaky wheel, so sometimes it's just that very vocal minority of uh, people that feel strongly against books and um, you know, they're getting the attention. But does that intolerance worry you? Do you think it's a, a threat to freedom, a threat to books, to libraries, even to democracy in America? I do. I do because it's not just parents that are wanting to ban books. It's government. It's elected officials. And so when you have the state saying that these books should not be read, um, to me, that's a very precarious um, precedent, and it, it's very troubling. There does seem to be something rather precarious about American democracy these days. Uh, we've done many shows on that, and American democracy is struggling to reinvent itself for the 21st century. We've done a few shows on people suggesting that we can learn much from indigenous communities, political organization and political traditions, they may not be democratic in a Jeffersonian sense or in terms of James Madison's scheme for government, but there's much to learn from that. Do you think there's some truth to that in terms of the political organization of your communities? How can understanding those traditions help America more broadly revitalize its own democracy? Um, I don't know, because our tribal governments have been, um, you know, have adapted through the years and gone through changes. And sometimes we're following, we're under a tribal constitution that was drafted by a Bureau of Indian Affairs official back in the, you know, 1930s. Mm. And, and so I think it's, we're, I would be very cautious about using tribal governments as any model for democracy because of the influence that, uh, that went into drafting those constitutions for tribes. Um, but I, I, do, I do think there are some good lessons to be learned um, and some really good teachings. I know in justice systems, when they look at reciprocal justice and uh, indigenous ways that in our communities that we had for uh, addressing people who violated, you know, societal norms. I, I think that's really interesting. There's a book out uh, by an author named B.L. Blanchard, and it's called The Peacekeeper. And it um, supposes if uh, the USA, if it had not been colonized and was a modern, thriving, you know, uh, society of all of these tribal nations, what that might look like. And it was, um, it was a, a really fascinating uh, read and, and really makes you think about justice and community. And um, so I, I highly recommend. Yeah, I wonder how, how long we need to wait until Hollywood uh, discovers this tradition. We've already had the Wakanda movies about rethinking Africa uh, and implicitly at least the African-Americans. Uh, 
do you think that big culture in America, particularly Hollywood and these blockbuster films, need to focus perhaps a little bit more on, obviously you'd love your, I assume, has, have you sold the film rights to the books? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, mm. I sold the film rights for Firekeeper's Daughter to uh, President Barack Obama and Michelle Oh, Obama. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yes. that's pretty exciting. So when's that coming out? <laughs> uh it's it's in the works. I I don't have a release date or. Um, Did you talk to the Obamas about it? Did you deal with them directly? No, I deal with the um, excellent executives that they have at Higher Ground. But we 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 should see something on the screen eventually, television yes. or the movie theater. Yes, I do want to call um, your attention to a series uh, called Reservation Dogs. And that is a series, I believe it uh, streams on Hulu. And it has an all-native uh, writing room. And the showrunner is native. And the producers are native. And it's uh, native creative talent the way I pitched uh, selling the film rights for my stories, which are it's not enough to have native creative talent in front of the camera. You need to have it behind the camera, in the writer's room, and at every level of production. Um, we need to be telling our stories in our way. And um, I think the quality and uh, ratings and acclaim that that series Reservation Dogs has received, I think that's a prime example of the excellent um, storytelling that you get. Is that what you're doing in Warrior Girl uh, Unearthed, telling your stories in your way? Yes. Tell me more. Oh. <laughs> I mean, what, um, what is this way? I mean, we don't want to give the book away, of course. It's just out, and I'm sure it's going to be another huge bestseller like uh, your previous book. But what does that mean, telling it in your way, particularly in terms of uh, young adult literature? I think for me it means um, taking a look at the story and the characters in it and their relationship to one another and making sure that that reflects the relationships that I see in my community and in particular our connection with our elders. And so... Uh, you know, one of the favorite characters in my first book, her name is Granny June, and she's, you know, a grand, a great grandmother of one of the characters. And we see Granny June and her best friend, uh, Minnie Mustang. And the elders play a vital role in the story. They're not there for, uh, as wallpaper. They are there integral to the story. And that feels very indigenous to me. Final question. I know you got to run. Um, you've got a busy day. We did a show with another very popular young adult writer, Jarrett Krzyzewska, on um, how, in his language, art can enable kids to escape their unfortunate circumstances. He grew up in a very dysfunctional uh, family. Is your book also, or is your literature about liberating young people from perhaps sometimes rather unfortunate circumstances in which they find themselves? I think I wanted to reflect um, uh, and tell a truthful story, and that included unpleasant truths in my community. But I also wanted to include 
humor and joy and sense of community and people looking out for one another and the things that I love about my community that often get overlooked, especially someone from outside the community wanting to tell our story. Um, I think that's why it's so important to have uh, you know, representation in, in authors telling stories of lived experience. And, um, you know, so I, I'm a strong believer in that because my community is so much more than its trauma. And, um, and I want that message to resonate with our, uh, our teens and with uh, people who are not Native and, and to get a fuller sense of, you know, uh, a loving community addressing issues in the best way that they know how. Um, so I think to otherwise to focus solely on the trauma is to do a great disservice.